Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 18. Last week, I began the history of the Iron Age, working through a portion of what led to it, namely the Bronze Age collapse and how the iron smelting process came about, eventually leading to the first bloomeries, uncovered in the territory allotted to either the tribe of Gad or the eastern half of the tribe of Manasseh. I also spent a little bit of time on the iron used in ancient societies that was sourced from meteors. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing with the Bronze Age Collapse, covering a few of the theories on why that upheaval came about. And with that, let's get started. The Iron Age in the ancient Middle East is thought to have begun with iron smelting and smithing technology in Anatolia, or possibly in the Caucasus or Balkans in the late 2nd millennium BC, likely around 1300 BC. And, like I covered in the last episode, the first bloomery, at least found so far, was uncovered at Tel Hama, Jordan, and dates to around 930 BC but I need to back up a bit. In Mesopotamia, in the area around Sumer, Akkad, and Assyria, the initial use of iron reaches back as far as about 3000 BC. One of the earliest smelted iron artifacts uncovered was a dagger with an iron blade found in a Hattic tomb in Anatolia, dating to about 2500 BC. And unlike the dagger found in King Tut's tomb, this one was not made from a meteor. By about 1000 BC, so when the Israelites were firmly established in Canaan and on the eastern bank of the Jordan, iron weapons began to replace the bronze versions. But this wasn't just limited to this region. At the same time, this replacement was occurring in North Africa and further east in Asia. Though some cultures did grasp it quicker and better than others. One such is believed to have been the Hittites of Anatolia. Their grasping it earlier is easier to understand, since it's believed the first real smelting occurred in the same region. All of this time pretty well with the Bronze Age collapse. And, since they were on the forefront of the rise in iron, the Hittites seemed to benefit from the collapse. Maybe a case of being in the right place at the right time and developing an emerging technology. More on that in a minute, but first, a deeper dive into the Bronze Age Collapse. At least a little deeper than what I touched on in the last episode. In this period, in the 12th century BC, nearly every city, from Pelosus in Greece to Gaza and Canaan, was either violently destroyed, or in the case of many, simply abandoned. This means most medium to large cities on the eastern side of the Mediterranean were affected, with many of these cities deserted to never be inhabited again. And the evidence is that this occurred quickly. In the case of Anatolia, the city of Kerogolin, which was located near the modern city of Ankara, was burned and the corpses left unburied likely indicated that nothing and nobody was left to do the interring. Even more well known is the fate of the city of Troy. In the Bronze Age, it was an Anatolian city and was destroyed at least twice 
before being abandoned until the arrival of the Romans, nearly a millennium later. As far as the nation-states were concerned, only the most powerful remained, and in most cases, they were severely weakened. This included Assyria, the Egyptian New Kingdom, and Elam, though they did remain and continued to fight one another, such as when Elam was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar I of Babylon. In 1056 BC, the Assyrian king Ashur-bel-Kala died, and their empire declined quickly. So, the big takeaway here is not every kingdom in society declined at exactly the same time. As some began to decline, others took advantage of it and exploited their neighbor's weakness. Though, that next kingdom wouldn't continue to thrive as it had in the past. Overall, and as seen in the case of Assyria, when the kingdom didn't just cease to exist, its boundaries shrunk tremendously. In the case of Canaan, something similar was afoot. Before the collapse, Syria was a theater of war. Conflicts that included belligerents like the Hittites, the Middle Assyrian Empire, the Mitanni, and even the New Kingdom of Egypt. These battles raged between about the 15th and the late 13th centuries BC. The Egyptians attacked the Hittites, but were unable to defeat them, so they withdrew back to the coastal regions of Canaan. Eventually, the Assyrians would defeat the Hurrian Mitanni Empire and gain control over the territory, which was eastern Anatolia, northern Canaan, and parts of Syria. Then, the coastal regions were attacked and defeated by the Sea Peoples, and this invasion by the Sea Peoples was not on a small scale, nor an uncoordinated assault. We see this in a clay tablet written by the last Syrian king over the city of Ugarit. He sent the letter to the king of Alasia, a place whose location hasn't been affirmatively nailed down. On the tablet, as best we can interpret, he pleads his case, saying, My father, behold, the enemy's ships came here. My cities were burned, and they did evil things in my country. Does not my father know that all my troops and chariots are in the land of the Hatti, and all my ships are in the land of Luca? Thus the country is abandoned to itself. May my father know it. The seven ships of the enemy that came here inflicted much damage upon us. After this letter, he received a response along with supporting troops but it was too late as the city was already destroyed. This wasn't the only such letter. Another one found on the island of Cyprus speaks of the destruction caused by an invading sea force. They also apparently struck mainland Greece with evidence of a significant decline in Athens. And this destruction and defeat wasn't just limited to the northern portions of Canaan. The south was still occupied by the Egyptians until an invading force drove them back across the Sinai. It's assumed these were the same as the Sea Peoples. At the same time, like I mentioned in the last episode, it was also an historical Dark Age. When this Dark Age was winding down, what emerged was much different from what had existed before the collapse. In the case of the Hittites, 
They emerged from the Dark Age not as a singular group, but fragmented into various smaller Syrian Hittite city-states in the same region, meaning in Anatolia and the northern portion of Canaan. Essentially what is today Turkey, Lebanon, and parts of Syria. And notice, culturally at least, they were no longer exclusively Hittite, and had merged in many cases with the Aramean peoples. South of them, in Canaan, the Philistines had settled. The overall belief by researchers is that the Philistines migrated from the Greek island of Crete during the collapse, and they may be one and the same as the so-called Sea Peoples. I'll get to them in short order. Of course, during this period, the Israelites arrived in Canaan, driving many of the former inhabitants out, all eventually leading to the period of the Judges, then the uniting of the tribes as the Kingdom of Israel. About the same time that the tribes were uniting, so were other kingdoms in the greater region, including the smaller Phrygians, the Sumerians, the Lydians, and the Hurrians. The forces that the Israelites would have to come to reckon with were the Assyrians to the north and the Babylonians to the east. Both of these would eventually come to control the region, but I'm far ahead of myself and need to get back to the Bronze Age collapse and then the Iron Age. But before I do, there's one important thing that needs to be remembered. From this upheaval and the Dark Age that followed and lasted around 400 years, from this emerged not only the Kingdom of Israel and the Assyrians, but also classical Greece, essentially the foundation of Western society. The collapse is even considered by some to be the influence for Plato's story of the lost city of Atlantis. Which of course begs the question, what caused this collapse? It couldn't have been just an invading force of people migrating from one area to another. Something had to trigger the migration. Most of the theories revolve around something environmental, and this shouldn't come as a surprise, as the Pentateuch is full of stories concerning environmental disasters causing migrations, droughts that cause the relocation of families to Egypt, fire and brimstone raining on cities causing their destruction and abandonment, and of course floods, among many others. The first such potential cause of a Bronze Age collapse is a volcano. I briefly mentioned this when covering the plagues that struck Egypt just prior to the Exodus. Some researchers have dated what's known as the Hecla III volcanic eruption in Iceland to 1159 BC, though other sources date the eruption to as much as 200 years later. When it did erupt, the ash cloud cooled temperatures in the northern hemisphere for several years. Evidence of the eruption has been found in Scottish peat bogs and in Ireland where tree rings dating from this period have shown little growth for the decade afterwards. There's also the Minoan eruption on the Greek island that's now named Santorini, though in the ancient world it went by Thera. When it erupted, it destroyed a Minoan settlement at Akwateri, along with villages and agricultural land on nearby islands. The island of Creek was hit with earthquakes and tsunamis. This eruption was one of the largest volcanic events on Earth in recorded history. 
But there's a dating problem here too, as it may have happened well before the collapse, around 1600 BC. Another possible natural event was a severe drought. Historical biologists theorized that the forests of the region in this ancient period shrunk, an event that was likely due to less rain and not because of deforestation of land to repurpose it for agriculture. Evidence of this can be seen in the surface level of the Dead Sea, which is thought to have dropped by some 150 feet, about 50 meters, during the period. And remember that rain and snow falling in the region from several hundred miles north of the sea flows into the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, and eventually to the Dead Sea. Not to forget that countless streams and wadis do the same. It's been estimated that for the sea to drop that much that quickly, the annual rainfall in the region would have had to drop to almost nothing, a cataclysmic drought. It couldn't have been just a small region that was impacted by the drought. Remember that the Sea Peoples are thought to have migrated from somewhere in the Aegean region, so well north of the Middle East. Some Egyptologists think the flow of the Nile also decreased in the period, which is what ultimately led to the downfall of the Egyptian New Kingdom, with the Sea People invading sometime around 1180 BC, while Ramses III was on the throne. In that empire, the drought would have caused crop failure, leading to famine and a smaller population, and an economic collapse triggering political instability. There's also a modern analog for such a drought. In 1998, and that's AD, a severe drought hit most of the Mediterranean region, with NASA scientists estimating it was the worst such event in the region in at least 900 years. This led to the same modern events as the proposed ancient ones, including a severe competition over water. The drought that began in 1998 lasted for 14 years and is considered to be a contributing factor to the Syrian civil war. It also led to crop failures and the migration of agricultural families to urban centers. Obviously, societal upheaval, and even in an era where we can make drinking water from the ocean. On a similar chord, some climatologists believe that when the North Atlantic experiences heavy winter storms, it brings more rain and snow to Central Europe. But there's only so much rain that can fall on the Earth, and when one region is wetter than normal, another is drier. And in this case, a wetter Central Europe tends to mean a drought in the Middle East. And when you can't store or import enough food, societal upheaval. There's also a theory that directly relates to the end of the Bronze Age and beginning of the iron. Owing to iron smelting, at least the more productive production of tools, and not the sort of merely trinkets, this technology is believed by some to have first developed in Eastern Central Europe, in what is today the countries of Bulgaria and Romania. At least, that's what the proponents of the theory propose. From these countries, and spreading out towards the south, the locals discovered how to use the plentiful iron ore to essentially mass-produce iron tools, tools that included daggers, swords, spear tips, and arrowheads. 
Also armor such as helmets, body armor, and perhaps even shields. This is thought to have begun in the region sometime between the 13th and 12th centuries BC. At the same time, bronze was still considered superior for both weapons and armor, but production was limited due to the relative scarcity of tin. So, an iron or steel equipped force could usually overwhelm a similar force equipped with bronze weapons and armor. If true, such an invasion would have had a compounding effect, that as the invaders conquered the territory between their enemy and that enemy's tin supply, the availability of bronze would quickly evaporate. Possibly in parallel with this was a revolution in the tactics used in warfare. In this case, this could be the first real use of a massed infantry equipped with mass-produced weapons. For example, cast iron spear tips replacing the prior bronze ones that were likely forged, and therefore were more slowly produced. This had a dramatic impact on warfare. The semi-legendary writer Homer, when he opined the Iliad, specifically about the Trojan War, used the words spear and warrior interchangeably, equating the weapon with the soldier. There was also the potential use of infantry swarming techniques, where a numerically superior force would quickly defeat a smaller, better armored foe. This new weapon, in the hands of a large number of what are called running skirmishers, could swarm and cut down a chariot army. This would have the effect of destabilizing empires and city-states that relied on chariots for their war-waging tactics. Without an adequate time to prepare to fight against such an invading force, invaders could quickly conquer, then pillage, then move on to the next stop in a regional territory amassing strategy. This has been seen in our modern history. World War I was rich with carnage due to the weapons outpacing the trench warfare tactic-minded generals. And even more applicable, World War II saw the use of transportation to quickly overwhelm a defensive enemy. The Nazis did so with tanks and Blitzkrieg, and the Japanese did the same with their aerial attack on Pearl Harbor. Back in the Bronze Age collapse, such quick defeats would lead to societal upheaval. In a more general sense, there is the complex theory that the technological gains of both bronze and iron, along with labor specialization and a top-heavy ruling class, when combined with a catalyst such as a year or two of smaller harvest or an invading force, proved to be the tipping point on many of these societies. Essentially, they had gotten to the point where they were inflexible, and something came along requiring them to flex, but they couldn't. They were too rigid, so they broke, and their societies fell apart. The thing about all of these theories is that none of them are mutually exclusive of any of the others, and in reality, the true cause of the Bronze Age collapse could have quite possibly been a combination of some are all of the theories. Volcanoes, weather, technology, inflexible societies. Any and all of the above. And whatever it was, it set the stage for the emergence of iron as the technology of the future. 
the Israelites knew it. Moses told them so in Deuteronomy 8. Before moving on to the emergence of the Iron Age, there's one thing I forgot to mention in the last episode when I discussed meteoric iron. And that's what Moses told the people in Deuteronomy. To quote him, he said they were going to a land whose stones are iron and from whose hills you may mine copper. And this is interesting. They knew copper had to be mined, and presumably, if it was raw copper hammered, or in the case of copper ore, smelted. As for iron, though, the stones were iron, and he didn't mention any such mining. There is the thought that this was before the hotter iron smelting had made it to the region, and the iron he was referring to was from meteors, fallen space rocks. We know they knew of these, as such iron was found in Tut's tomb, and Tut is believed to have ruled Egypt between 1334 and 1325 BC. Jewish scholars believe the Exodus occurred around 1310 BC, so a mere 15 years after Tut was entombed with his meteor dagger. Iron rocks in Deuteronomy? Maybe meteors. Think it's a stretch? Well, think back to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, some centuries before Moses and the Exodus. Outside research has shown that around 1700 BC, a meteor exploded in the atmosphere above the Dead Sea Basin, and such airbursts tend not only to pack a punch and destroy anything nearby, including towns and villages, they also spread large meteor fragments over a wide area. This event, if the theory is true, would have destroyed everything in about a 200-square-mile, 500-square-kilometer area. Pottery uncovered from that time and place shows signs of being superheated, to the tune of at least 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 4,000 Celsius, maybe as high as 22,000 Fahrenheit, 12,000 Celsius, this is far hotter than the surface of the sun, but not nearly as hot as a lightning bolt. But it couldn't have been a bolt given all of the other destruction found. And recall that the technology of the copper, bronze, and iron ages could not produce heat anywhere near that hot. So the only theory that works is of a cosmic or volcanic sort. But there's no evidence of volcanoes there and then and the explosion has been calculated to be the equivalent of about 10 megatons of TNT. To put that number in perspective, that's about eight times more powerful than the largest active U.S. nuclear bomb. I'm not sure if I covered this theory when I released that two-part episode on Sodom and Gomorrah in December 2016. Actually, I'm pretty sure I didn't considering the meteor research wasn't released until almost two years after I recorded the episode. Anyway, back to the Iron Age. In a vein similar to the theories about the Bronze Age collapse, there are other researchers who think the rise of the Hittites, who lived in Anatolia, may have been related to their mastery of ironworking. In the region, they seem to have been the first and for a while, the only regional power that understood the metal, at least until the Sea People arrived, 
who apparently also understood it, and broke the monopoly the Anatolians had on the technology. There's something else about the Hittites' use of iron. Few iron weapon artifacts have been uncovered, so most of the iron they produced was of the tool sort. It's likely their weapons remained bronze, and therefore the Sea Peoples could have used the same tactics on the Hittites as they did on all the other foes they encountered. When the Sea Peoples did arrive on the scene, iron weapon use spread relatively quickly throughout the region, but it was too late to stop the collapse. Egypt, though, was different. Other than oddities, like Tut's dagger, few artifacts are made of iron. It appears that bronze remained the metal of choice in the empire until the mid-7th century BC, when they were conquered by the Neo-Assyrian Empire. This theory is due to the tomb relics being made of bronze. Though, there's a different explanation. The ancient Egyptians are thought to have viewed iron as being an impure metal, not worthy for use in religious purposes, especially in the tombs of their now-deceased, once-living deity. Iron was thought to have been produced by a spirit known as Set, the usually evil deity of deserts, storms, envy, disorder, violence, and foreigners in the ancient Egyptian religion, not worthy to be in the pharaoh's tomb. Of course, the same belief didn't apply to meteoric iron, as it has been found in several ancient Egyptian tombs, as far back as the Black Pyramid, thought to date to around 2000 BC. And the explanation is simple. They didn't consider the smelted metal sourced from ore to be the same as that from pure iron rocks found in the desert. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue working through the Iron Age. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.